there's an island filled with Mustangs. I'm not talking about Ford Mustangs, not the muscle cars. I'm talking about wild horses. They've been on the island since the 1500s, according to local lore. It's off the coast of Georgia. They call it Cumberland Island. It's one of the most scenic places on earth. Horses galloping on the white sandy beaches with the Atlantic Ocean forming a blue backdrop. The horses are as wild and rugged as the island they inhabit. Cumberland Island encompasses 36,000 acres. Besides the white sandy beaches, there are coastal wetlands, salt marshes, and further inland forests filled with live oaks and palmettos. And all the horses fend for themselves. They have plenty to eat on the island. Sea oats, Spanish moss, acorns, native grasses. Their diet is more similar to deer than domestic horses. The 200 Mustangs on the island have a range of colors from white to tan and from brown to almost black. There's something about wild Mustangs that represent freedom. Recently, Sarah and I watched a documentary entitled Wild Horse, Wild Ride. It followed the annual Mustang Challenge in Fort Worth, Texas. There were 100 Mustangs rounded up in federal sweeps of public lands. And each Mustang was given to a trainer. Each trainer had 100 days to tame it before a two-day event in Fort Worth where the trainer showcased the horse's abilities and obedience. The trainers range from top professionals around the world to amateur horsemen. It's quite a wide swath. From a, from a man and woman in their 70s to a, a woman who holds a PhD in biomedical engineering, Native American, a number of people who have been riding and breaking horses since they were, as they say, knee-high to a grasshopper. It was fascinating to watch each trainer do their work. They each had their own way of doing it, their own tricks, their own curriculum, their own pedagogy, their own school of training. Each one comes in extremely confident in their program, extremely confident in their particular abilities. Each one thinks he or she is the horse whisperer. They're going to handle this horse in no time. And the trainers didn't work with the horse for an hour or two or day. They taught the Mustangs all day long, all week long. Early on, these Mustang whisperers were kicked, bitten, and eventually bucked off. These rough, wild, out-of-control, spastic Mustangs were born to be free, born to reject training. After 100 days, the results varied. Some trainers were able to teach basic commands, stop, turn right, turn left, gallop, now run. After 100 days, the results varied for others as well. One guy blindfolded the horse and then he stood on its back and he did a lasso trick around his head and then it got wider and wider until it covered the entire horse. They awarded their first, second, and third place. What's, what's interesting is that at the end of the 100 days, some would simply say, this horse is untrainable, untamable. In our text, we find ourselves standing on another island filled with Mustangs. Not the muscle cars or the horses, but people 
running free on the island, refusing to be trained, refusing to live by the law, refusing to enter any gospel school. Spiritual mustangs, running from God and bucking his commands. And someone must go to this little island surrounded by salt water and tame these mustang hearts. It will take a certain type of person, a certain fearlessness, someone convinced of his own way of doing it, his own tricks, his own curriculum, his own pedagogy, his own school of training. Paul is convinced he's found the man for the job. And he's not wearing your typical island clothing. Hawaiian shirt, board shorts, and Sperry's. No, he's wearing snakeskin boots, Stetson hat, and a big belt buckle that says Sola Scriptura. He's a saltwater cowboy named Titus. Paul says, Titus, if you want to train a wild heart, a Mustang soul, you must put him in school. In the text, we have three schools. First, a school of grace. Then a school of hope. Then a school of authority. And by the way, I want, I want to help you read between the lines. You're the Mustang heart. I'm talking about you. Your heart is rough, wild, out of control, and born to reject training. You can blame others. You can look at your genetics. You can talk about your family of origins. You can even look at your biochemical makeup. But at the end of the day, it's just varying ways to excuse your Mustang heart. The nose of the sinner must be cleared to smell the stench of his sin. The eyes of the transgressor must be opened to see the debauchery of his transgressions. The ears of the evildoer must be free to hear the consequences of his evil. I'm trying to be flowery about it, but I'll just say it straight. A Mustang heart must be stabbed awake. And made these three schools do just that for us. First we have the school of grace. Notice verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace appeared. We didn't discover the grace of God. It came down to us. It appeared to us. We did not appear to it. The Greek word here for appeared is epiphany. Where we get our English word Epiphany. This word is used in classical Greek literature to picture the sun leaping over the horizon into view. Of an enemy emerging out into plain sight during an ambush. The grace of God. Epiphanied. It was previously concealed but now it's come into view. And, and, and what is this grace of God that was once hidden but suddenly appeared? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ stepping into human history. Grace is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ. Now, of course, grace didn't come into existence when Christ came. God has always been gracious, but grace appeared visibly in Jesus Christ. Grace had fingernails. Grace had eyes. Grace had ears. Grace wore pants. Grace sat at a table. Grace laughed, grace cried, grace spoke, grace walked among us. What was the reason for this epiphany of grace? Notice verse 11. Bringing salvation for all people. 
everyone is presented with an opportunity to enroll into the school of grace. And friend, you may, you may buck the training, but trust me, you want a desk in the schoolroom of grace. Would you notice carefully that Paul is not saying that all men are saved? So don't misunderstand him here. He's, he's not preaching universalism. It's important to read this verse in its context. Paul has just been addressing different groups of people within the church. He addressed older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and he ends with addressing slaves. So Paul's saying here that grace brings salvation to all people. Grace isn't prejudiced. Grace isn't sexist. Grace isn't biased. It's not partisan. It's not anti-Semitic or anti-Gentile. It's for the rich and the poor. It's for every skin tone, every political affiliation, every subdivision, every ghetto, every hood, every street. Grace came for the religious and the irreligious, for the open sinners and the closed sinners, the hidden ones. Grace came for you and grace came for me. Grace came from above. Grace condescends to us. No nation, tongue, people, or person is excluded from his saving work. And dear friends, if, if you die, if you die and perish for eternity in the horrors of hell, you must walk over the blood-stained, grace-smeared cross to do it. See, grace doesn't only save, but notice the next word in verse 12. Training. Let's all say that word together on the count of three. One, two, three, training. When you get saved, grace isn't finished. Paul effectively says, listen, Titus, I want, I want you to tie your horse to the island's living oak and explain to every Mustang heart how grace impacts every aspect of our lives. Now, Paul could have chosen any Greek word for training. He could have chosen didasco, which refers to teaching in a formal classroom setting. Didasco only works when you show up at a certain time and at a certain place. But Paul doesn't use that word. Instead, he uses the word pedeo, which gives us our word pedagogy. It speaks of all day long, all week long training. In other words, the grace of God is a teacher that takes us from where we are and teaches us every second of every minute, every minute of every hour, every hour of every day. The grace of God never stops discipling us. And notice the change of tenses. Grace appeared, that's past tense, but now it's training, that's present tense. Grace trains a rebel heart, a Mustang heart. In other words, if, if you've missed a lesson or two yesterday, the good news is grace will show up and teach you today. Grace is the perfect tutor. Martin Luther said grace comes to you in three movements. Once for all, again and again, more and more. Just grace upon grace. And you say, Kyle, you're, you're being vague. What exactly does grace teach us? Well, grace writes two words on the board. When you master these two words, you graduate from the school of grace. The first word, no. The second word, yes. If you want to measure how you're growing in grace, just ask yourself, how, how often am I saying these two words? 
Notice verse 12 as it continues. Training us to renounce. In other words, training us to say no. The word tense in the original language means to forsake in an ongoing basis. To deny, to disown, to say no with the greatest hatred. But let's all say the word no together on the count of three. One, two, three. No. no. Good. Now let's say it like you say it to your children. One, two, three. No. Yeah. See, they think you're calling them in the back. They think that's their first name. It's, it's not. See, a lot of people think that grace is just there after you do wrong things. But grace is there before you do wrong things, telling you to say no. Where grace reigns, it trains. Showing you the kind of life you should be leaving behind. A, a person who says, Kyle, I'm, I'm under grace. You know what that means? It means I can say yes to everything. That person is not being tutored by grace. Growing in Christ, growing in grace is impossible without a discipline of refusal. What are we to renounce? The next word ungodliness. Now, we've already uncovered the ungodliness going on on these island churches. We discovered that in the first two and a half chapters. There's anger, immorality, immaturity, and life and doctrine. Lack of reverence, slander, substance abuse, idleness, family breakdown, crudity, dishonesty. I need more fingers. Disobedience, back talk, theft. And if such matters had to be addressed in those churches, they need to be addressed in our church. Titus says, church, there is a kind of lifestyle you should be in the process of rejecting on a daily basis. You, you are never beyond temptation. You will never outgrow the need to say no to something. Ungodliness, that's external. Notice the next two words. Worldly passions, that's internal. We must honestly assess our internal compulsions. Compulsions to be and to buy. Some of you are, are caught in the subtle cords of materialism and social acceptance. You have to wear those clothes and you have to drive that vehicle. And you need to see that that sin is making you every day more desperate financially. Inner compulsions to be and to buy and also to see with the eye. We must ask honest questions about our entertainments. The music. Are you listening for the pure aesthetic excellence or are you being tranquilized regarding evil? The things you watch, is it, is it that you just enjoy the clever plot lines or do you watch because you need a sexual fix? We look down on Christians before us who participated in pagan rituals. I do not think history will be kind to our generation of Christians weekly watching sexual acts in movies and sitcoms. Persuasive sin has the ability to make us callous. If allowed, we will always rationalize our sin and continue in its path. And sometimes we give ourselves permission to cross the line into sin. It isn't that bad. It's just a little sin. It's no big deal. As Charles Spurgeon said, we venture into sin where we think the stream is shallow but we soon find ourselves drowning in the enemy's waters. 
You should be aware that the world hates the word no. We live in a culture that denies itself of nothing. The world system is designed to erase every no and replace it with the word now. Francis Schaeffer cautioned us about living in such a culture more than three decades ago when he said, and I quote, we have a society that holds itself back from nothing. Any concept of a real no is avoided as much as possible. Everything must give in to affluent and selfish personal peace. He continues, since the fall of man, we do not want to deny ourselves. And this natural disposition fits in exactly with the authority, with the environment which surrounds us, end quote. You realize it is extremely countercultural for the Bible to speak into our society and say that the Christian life, that there's a, there's a strong negative aspect in it, and the strong negative aspect is saying no to certain things and saying no to self. We are not allowed to say that in the age of grace there are no standards for us to follow. Godliness remains our obligation until Jesus returns. The grace of God will not allow us to live unconcerned. Let's, let's answer two questions. First, what is wrong with me if I can't say no? Secondly, what's right with me if I can't stand sin? We'll begin with the first. What's wrong with me if I can't say no? If you have little desire to say no to the nastiness of sin, that's revealing. Like the proverbial little girl who brought into her farmhouse her pet pig and her pet lamb. She put them both into the bathtub and scrubbed them sparkling clean. She brushed them and dried them and put a pink ribbon around both of their necks and went outside to play with them. And of course, they ran outside and went in two different directions. The lamb ran toward the green grass and the pig ran back into the mud. See, here's the difference. The defiled and non-believing longed to sin while their forgiven believer longs to live a clean life out of gratitude to the grace of God. Maybe you find it easy to sin because you're not truly a Christian. I know you've prayed a prayer. I know you were baptized. But you still love sin. And you run to it as quickly as possible. And let's be frank, you really don't have any remorse about it. I would, I would be unjust, I would be lying to you if I said a redeemed heart does that. Second question, what's right with me if I can't stand sin? Simply put, everything. Everything is right with you. Grace is training you. The Spurge said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, dispensing grace, I smote my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Richard Sibbs was known for writing about how, being, how after being transformed by the gospel, the sin itself becomes more loathsome to you than the punishment. Biblical grace makes 
you intolerant to evil in your life. I call it intolerant grace. I don't think that's the grace that's being preached in most places this morning. But it is the grace of scripture. Intolerant grace. The Puritans called this the power of new affections. What will ultimately make you holy is not your willpower, nor guilt, nor an eloquent speaker, or a hip church. What will ultimately make you holy is a deep change that now sees sin as ugly and God as beautiful. Titus introduces no teaching of any kind of grace that would leave men in sin and yet save them from its punishment. Grace doesn't wink at iniquity. Grace is training us. It's enabling us. It's teaching us. Grace has taught my heart to fear. And some of you Christians are battling a certain sin. And you're wondering if you have the power to say no. And I say you don't. But grace does. Once you were not able not to sin, but now you are able not to sin. Let me say that again. Once you were not able not to sin, but now you are able not to sin. Sin has no more dominion over you. You can make progress against besetting sin. Christ's resurrection power lives inside of us. And the only reason, the only reason sin has any power in our lives is because we love it. If sin had no attraction for us, it would have no power over us. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The mark of grace is not the absence of sin in our lives. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not even saying, I'm not saying that's possible. It's not. The mark of grace is not the absence of sin in our lives, but the presence of new desires and a new power to overcome temptation. Grace writes a second word on the board. Yes. Notice verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And mark these next two words. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us to say no to sin. Grace also trains us to say yes to God. Yes to living sensibly, righteously, and godly. In fact, the tenses of the verb here, to live, indicate that it takes place at the same time you're denying your old life. We, we don't just put off the old man, we put on the new man. Grace teaches you to say no and at the same time teaches you to say yes. We, we have here the negative and positive aspects of grace's training. And, and let's just talk about good works for a moment. Because there's an entire list of good works in the text. My temptation is to say that this church will run headlong into legalism if I point out these matters. But that's just not accurate. That's wrong. Notice, good works do not make grace show up. It's not what happens in the text. Grace shows up and then teaches you about good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved to good works. Your, friend, your, your good life never garners grace. But when you've experienced this grace, this grace does garner a good life. When grace is properly understood, the law isn't trashed. 
It's treasured. The rules don't change. The reasons do. We serve God because He loves us, not in order to get God to love us. John Bunyan pictured this so well when he wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Your heart has a natural bent to behave like a Mustang. But you possess Christ, you possess the Holy Spirit, you possess the gospel, and it wings you. You can fly to a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. This week I talked to one of my mentors who, who helped get me through, um, helped get me into seminary for my doctoral program. And then he helped get me through it as well. Basically, every paper he's like, this is terrible. <laughs> redo it before you turn it in. This is terrible. Redo it. He's, he's probably in his mid to late 70s. He finished his doctoral degree at um, Westminster. So I, I just talked to him. And, he's, and I, said, I said, Dr. Samworth, would you tell me, what do you think about the landscape of the churches and, and what's going on right now? And he said, Kyle, churches aren't training their people to live the Christian life. To say no to some things and to say yes to other things. And he left me with this last word. Kyle, train your church to live the Christian life. Paul tells Titus, grace will tutor you to say yes, say yes to holiness. And, and holiness in three different areas. Okay, holiness... Notice the words in the verse, self-controlled, upright, godly. So we've got self-controlled, that's with ourselves. Upright, that's with others. And godly, that is with God. The rhythms of grace educate us to holiness. Grace disciplines us to righteous living. We say no to ungodly living and we say yes to godly living. It's true, we must not tolerate a gospel divorced from grace. But it's also true we must not tolerate a grace that abandons holiness. There is a danger of picking one thing to mark our distinctiveness, legalism. But there's also a danger of picking nothing to show our distinctiveness, antinomianism. If you have a theology or a belief, or you come from a church that says you can be saved but show no evidence or desire to submit to the Lordship of Christ? I would think Titus 2.12 delivers a death blow to that type of thinking. Now, we're going to leave the school of grace, but none of us graduated. The school of grace never graduates any students. You'll be enrolled for eternity. Second school, the school of hope. So the school of grace teaches you to say two words. The school of hope teaches you to look forward to one event, the second coming of Christ. Notice verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let's work from the end of the verse back to the beginning. Notice the words God and Savior. They're both governed by the same article in the original language. It's literally the great God and Savior. Paul is saying they're the same person. He's making a Christological pronouncement. You could reverse the order in your English translation and capture the idea. Jesus Christ is the Savior and our great God. 
I want you to notice right away that there's two appearings of Christ. There's two epiphanies. Notice verse 11. That's the appearing of the first coming of Christ. Then notice verse 13. That's the appearing of the second coming of Christ. And you may want to put your finger on one verse and and then the other, but verse 11, that's an epiphany of grace. Verse 13, that's an epiphany of glory. Verse 11 is in the past. Verse 13 is in the future. And we live in the middle. Verse 12. Notice the last two words of verse 12. Present age. We live between verse 11 and 13 in this present age. And these epiphanies, it's a two-act drama. And we live in light of both. And, And some of you are asking, Kyle, how am I going to make it through the tragic news that I received last week? Well, I'll tell you how. There's a push and pull in Christian living. There's a push and pull in the Christian life. We are pushed from behind by the wonder of grace and we are pulled forward by the hope of glory. Martin Luther said, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. This should be an essential part of our daily discipline. John R. Stott reminds us that we must do this every day. He says, we need to say to ourselves regularly this great acclamation. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Then you will be inspired by the past epiphany and motivated by the future epiphany. In verse 11, the the epiphany of grace, that was the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, when he came to redeem Mustang hearts. Verse 13, the epiphany of glory refers to the return of Christ when he finally comes for the redeemed Mustang hearts. See, grace has appeared. Glory will one day appear. The two comings are like two windows. Through the western window, a solemn light streams from Mount Calvary. Through the eastern window shines a glimpse of sun rising, the herald of a brighter day. So the school of hope is well lighted and we cannot afford to do life without light from either window. We need east and west. Now let's answer a question. What should the second coming of Christ do for you? Well, the text reveals it. It should help you wait. It should help you wait. Every time the second coming is brought up in the Bible, it's never so that you can speculate about what it will be like in the end. It's always to get you to live passionately life now. Cornelius Platinga in his book, Engaging God's World, said, The second coming is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. If you are a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or in the southern United States in the early 19th century, or if you are an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, if you are a woman in a culture where when your husband is mad at you, he can lock you up in a closet and call up his buddies and threaten to have them rape you, if you are a Christian in sub-Saharan Africa today where AIDS is devastating whole populations, you don't yawn when someone mentions the return of Jesus. The coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king. And the coming king means justice will at last fill the earth. B. 
Biblical hope is not finger crossing. You have a vital hope for the future. Another question. Do you eagerly await the coming of Christ? And I don't mean do you believe the doctrine, but do you eagerly await him? This doesn't mean that, that you always must be thinking about the second coming all the time. Some of you husbands, you're, you're not, you have your spouse, you love her, but you're not always thinking about her all the time. Right? Your wives are like, what? <laughs> Just scratch that, okay? Just scratch that illustration. You don't always have to be thinking about it all the time. There are a handful of places... There are a handful of places in the body where you can get an accurate temperature. The mouth, the ear, a couple other places. In a, in a similar manner, there are a few questions that will gauge your temperature for Christ's coming. Gauge your hope for Christ's coming. Ask yourself these three questions. Does my mind return frequently to the truth of Christ appearing? Does my mind return frequently to the truth of Christ appearing? Second question, when my mind turns to the truth of his appearing, does my heart want it, and is there an eagerness to see it? Question three, and this is the one that just wrecked me this week. Do you pray for his coming? Do I pray for his coming? Maranatha, yelled the early church. Meant, come, Lord Jesus. So that's your prayer. When your fire is sizzling out, and for some of you it is, when fatigue and competitive, competitiveness has taken over, and for some of you it has, you need to remember that the engine of your soul is Christ's return. Now, there's a, there's a pivot in the text. Paul says, while we're talking on the subject of this great God and Savior, let me tell you what he's done for those who have placed their faith in him. Notice verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are, who are what? Who are zealous for good works. The apostle designs every phrase of this beautiful verse to exude the wonder of Christ's work. He turns wild mustangs into beautiful gospel stallions. The text says he redeems us. He bought us. We are under exclusive contracts to Christ. We are not free agents. The text says he redeemed you from all lawlessness, past, present, and future. That means you can't do something tomorrow where Christ will say, oh, I, I didn't know about that sin. No, he knows. And he redeemed you from all lawlessness, past, present, future. What, what a delicious truth. Christ died to Purify for himself, himself a people who are zealous for good works. Not self-conscious about instructing how to do good works because they fear it will lead to legalism. No, they are zealous for good works. There's a story told of the late queen mother of the British royal family. When her children, Princess Elizabeth, now Queen Elizabeth II, and Princess Margaret were young and they were going to a party, she would remind them before they left, royal children have royal manners. It was a reminder that their behavior needed to match their status. 
Their status came first. Their behavior should follow. And these verses are teaching the same thing to Christians. God has made us a part of his people. In Christ, we are members of the royal family. That is our status and we cannot lose it. And our behavior should match who we are. Royal children have royal manners. So Paul tells Titus, you have to take these Mustangs to the school of grace and then take them to the school of hope. But I'm going to take you personally, Titus, to the school of authority. Notice verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one, Titus, let no one disregard you. Paul gives Titus three imperatives. You could write an exclamation point after each verb. Declare, exclamation point. Exhort, exclamation point. Rebuke, exclamation point. What is Titus to declare? These things. What is these things referring to? Every word in the book up until this point. Everything in the letter so far. There are churches popping up in Nashville, Clarksville, you name it, Ville, all the Villes, and they are saying that the Christian life and growing in grace does not come about by what we call or what they call information transfer. So many of these churches, they do no teaching and no preaching, and their mentality is that you grow in Christ merely by hanging out with one another. Well, the Apostle Paul would take off his glasses and, and, and scratch his head. He's not familiar with that because he says, declare. And then he says, notice the next word, exhort. This word involves more than simply stating and explaining truth. It carries the idea of entreating and, and pleading. It's not just a conversation, it's an invitation. You really need to do something about this in the text. And the words become progressively more and more intense. Notice next, rebuke. Bring them to shame. Paul emphasizes that this saltwater cowboy should go in with authority. Perhaps Titus was a bit timid. John MacArthur, who many of, many of you know, some of you are from his church... He said, the Greek word for authority is essentially a military term that means command. So let's unpack that. Whenever you see this word in the New Testament translated in other places, it's always command. And for some reason here, the translators decide to soften it and substitute with the word authority. But, but it should read, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all command. In other words, the preacher is in the position of this is, this is going to hit you hard. Okay? Commanding people. He's the general speaking to the soldiers. It, command, authority. It's a military term. Now we don't use that word often because, because honestly it scares us. But here's what you need to understand. The authority does not lie with the speaker. This is not where the authority lies. This is where the authority lies. So when the speaker speaks the word, that's when he's commanding. That's when he has authority. If you have a preacher that, that doesn't come to you and bear upon your soul the great weight and with clarity and conviction the truth of Scripture, he's a shadow, not the substance of a real preacher. You come to bear on the soul. 
Titus, let no one disregard you. Let no one brush you off. There's no one for whom the word of God does not apply. The, the Greek word here, disregard, is, is quite an interesting word. It means to evade. It means to rationalize. Titus, let no Mustang heart think around you. Let no one imagine that they can evade you by their rationalizations or their self-justifications. School of grace, school of hope, school of authority. Now, I have 15 applications I want to give you. I'm just kidding. I have one application, but it doesn't sound as bad after I said 15. Here's the one application, Christ-centered application. I want you to stick with me here. It's interesting, you can book in the ministry of Christ using Mustangs. Untrained, untamed, unbroken horses. Remember when Jesus went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? He did something really unusual. Before he reached the city, he asked two of his disciples to go into a nearby village. And he said, you'll find a colt tied where no man has ever ridden. In other words, you'll find a wild Mustang, a wild colt, a, really a, a mini Mustang... Now, what's interesting is, is before you get to that point in Luke, Jesus has already walked 91 miles. It started in chapter 9. He's walked 91 miles, and now he gets a few, a few hundred yards away from Jerusalem, and he wants to ride in in an unbroken mini Mustang. What's behind this? Some of you own horses. How many of you have ever ridden a horse? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I'm surprised, just as many as the first service. It's wild. What happens if you jump on a horse that's never been ridden? You're coming off quickly, aren't you? It's not like you jump on and like, giddy up, let's, let's go. No, you're going to be bucked off. Your horse has to be broken. But Jesus jumped on the unbroken mini Mustang, the untamed colt, and it didn't buck him. Not only that, but Jesus rides it through a screaming crowd. You remember that religious event that happened last year, the Kentucky Derby? Remember that? <laughs> there was a horse that, that won the race, clearly, but after they reviewed it, they, they took his victory away because he went into the lane of another horse. They asked the jockey later, well, what happened to your horse? And he said, the crowd scared him. It's interesting. Jesus was on his little mini Mustang going into Jerusalem, and the crowd is screaming on every side. But the horse is calm. See, that didn't happen with Jesus because he's the ultimate horse whisperer. Why do animals not like it when humans jump on them? Why do they need training? Why do they need schools? We had someone in the first service. She, she trains horses. That's a job. Why is that needed? Animals are afraid of us in their natural state. And they should be. They should be. C.S. Lewis said, man with dog closes gap in universe. What did he mean by that? When an animal absolutely and completely trusts you, when it doesn't buck you, you can't explain that without theology. We were made to name animals, we were made to mesh with animals, but we don't anymore. George Whitfield said, you know why dogs bark and growl at you and then run away? Because they know you have a quarrel with their master. 
Jesus didn't break the colt, the mini Mustang. He healed it of its fear. He's not scared when Jesus is in the saddle. When Jesus is in the driver's seat, friend, he heals you. He's the only one in the universe who can control you without destroying you. The only thing that can ride you without breaking you. Jesus' first coming, remember verse 11? That was an epiphany of grace and he came on a, a little mini Mustang. Jesus' second coming, verse 13, that will be an epiphany of glory. And do you know how he will come? According to Revelation, he'll come on a war horse, a terrible steed, a Mustang, a white one. There's just something about seeing Jesus on a white Mustang that screams freedom. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.